I'm Chris Gerboth, and this is American Storyteller. Katrina Becker lives in central Wisconsin and farms organic produce with her husband and children. She's part of a movement of young, dedicated, and smart Americans who are creating a new 21st century tradition of growing essential food and, at the same time, being responsible stewards of the land. What's life like on today's family farm? Let's find out. All children will think raspberries are magic and cherry tomatoes are amazing and those things. But, you know, I get to see those connections in a way that informs my work. Seeing my kids pick peas, even if they grumble about it, <laughs> allows me like a window into a connection with a larger, you know, with everyone that eats the peas in, in certain ways. Well, let's start out where we usually do. Tell me about your hometown. So I grew up on what is now the Upper West Side of New York in Manhattan. It at that time was kind of the border between Harlem and Morningside Heights, um, which were distinct neighborhoods. And even throughout my own lifetime there, there was gentrification from the Upper West Side up north into Morningside Heights. And I mean, if you go visit my neighborhood now, the parts of Harlem that bordered where I grew up, which in the 80s and 90s um, had some serious economic development issues. And I think a lot of parts of the cities were struggling right now are shiny and filled with so many restaurants and coffee roasters. It's, it's almost a totally different world. And I was born in 1979. So I grew up in the 80s and 90s. So that's when I resided there. And obviously my normal was that. So I played in the park with my friends, didn't do any farming. Um, and, <laughs> but yeah, that, I mean, that's where I grew up. And I was always, you know, if people that know me, I'm kind of active and outgoing. And I think that that is kind of how I always was. And so those parts of me feel the same, but um, New York is its own setting and it, you know, creates people in a certain way or, you know, kind of, I don't know what I would say. So what would you say as far as your part of New York in creating people, and in particular, I guess, in creating you? You know, as many cities are um, or have historically been is like a city of neighborhoods. And so I feel like I'm very much a product of my neighborhood and even looking at my life now, which I guess we'll get to at some point, you know, food, <laughs> it was always at the center of my entire upbringing and family. Um, I think food is very important in a lot of Jewish families. And then my dad's family was from the South, the uh, American South. And so he brought also a very distinct cooking tradition with a lot more pork than my mom um, to our <laughs> household. And, um, and, but a lot of our kind of daily life when I was little was focused on shopping. Um, that's a very New York, you know, you shop for almost every meal or in between meals. And, you know, I have so many memories about, you know, being at the kosher butcher with my mom waiting in line, getting slices of bologna or a sour pickle. I could choose either one. 
because it's always a long line. Um, and a lot of my life was kind of focused on those many experiences. A lot of like doing chores seems like it takes like a much more time in New York. And obviously we walked everywhere. And so my neighborhood, a lot of my, my memories growing up and probably most of my memories are either in outdoor spaces, you know, with kind of neighborhood characters or friends, but also almost always set in a place where there was food or drinks or some sort of component of eating or procuring food. And, you know, obviously part of that is because New York City life is very public. And so you go to, you know, the coffee shop, you know, I'd go around the corner from my apartment with my dad when I was a teenager and he'd get a cup of coffee and I would get a pastry and that's where we would sit and talk or, you know, we'd walk down to a Chinese restaurant to get takeout. A lot of our life was kind of in those public spaces and focused on food. So were both of your parents Jewish? My dad, um, you know, I think would be described as a Quaker who was recovering from being a Southern Baptist. Okay. And my mom is very agnostic, um, but but like especially now that I'm in the Upper Midwest, very culturally Jewish woman. And so I say that my cultural life was dominantly Jewish in terms of many of my friends. I'd say most of my white friends were Jewish. And also in terms of, you know, my parents' friends, there was a lot of like blended Jewish and non-Jewish families that we celebrated holidays with or did things with. And so that was part of it. But the religious part of Judaism was not a dominant part of my life. It was very much like food and cultural parts that, um, and communication style (laughs) that, um, that are part of who I, you know, am and who I obviously was. You mentioned communication style, which is something that gets imprinted on us in childhood. What do you think you took from your parents in terms of how you communicate and relate to others? I mean, there's two, my parents are very distinct <laughs> in terms of who they are. Um, my mom, I would, <laughs> don't know if she would like this, but is kind of socially awkward, low eye contact, easily overwhelmed by social settings, generally introverted. My father is, had definitely had a personality much more similar to my own. And when I think about Um, my dad, who was a psychiatrist. So what he did was work with people with like substance abuse problems and severe mental illness. That was like his thing. And that meant that my dad was friends with like every homeless drug addict in our neighborhood. Like everyone knew his name. Everyone knew our names. Totally unfazed by any like strange social behavior, addiction. I mean, these are things that like for him, like were the same as like you know, anybody you'd meet in the elevator, like in your apartment building, he, tr- he treated everyone um, in a very egalitarian, open way. Um, and I think that's genuinely who he was. And I think, you know, I did take a lot away from that. Me and my sister often talk about that, that we are, we're, we're so comfortable with so many people and so many communication styles because my dad kind of exemplified that. I mean, I think my sister and I also, like, I think both of us had this memory of being several miles from my apartment with my dad walking on the street and a man in a beret and a cape and like short shorts, like literally like kind of like flapped wings across the street. And he was like, Ted. And like my dad talked to him for like 10 minutes on the side of the street. And that's kind of like the, 
the type of very New York, but also like very my dad communication. And so certainly like this, this openness to people, I think I took away from him. And then there is, you know, this part of New York that's very debate. <laughs> you know, I've had to really tone this down a little bit in the upper Midwest, but very debate focused, aggressive, interrupty. Um, those are forms of communication that I really enjoy. And I miss those a little bit. It's always fun when I am with friends or folks that I grew up with because of the, the pace of conversation is very rapid. And it's kind of like you're building a story together. It's a very different rhythm. Um, Midwestern talk has a lot of pauses to let other people enter, which I'm horrible at and also make me feel uncomfortable because I can't tell if I'm being asked to keep talking or not. But yeah, in terms of communication, I think that those are the big things. I mean, my, yeah, my childhood yeah. had this, this very strange New Yorkness to it because of who my dad was in the world that that allowed, especially my sister and I, to kind of enter into. I'm not quite done talking about the past, but when it comes to living in the Midwest, you know, folks can be really deferential. And I would say bordering on passive aggressive at times in their indirectness. How do you work with that? Because you're in front of the public a lot. I mean, how do you adapt? That's a good question. Um, I mean, I think at a baseline, you know, I've been in Wisconsin since 2003. So, you know, not quite 20 years, but it's been a while. You know, mm -hmm. it's, I've almost lived in Wisconsin the same length as I lived in New York State. And, um, and I have been in Athens since 2006. And in certain ways, like, I just don't, I mean, I'll never obviously blend in, in a lot of the ways that I am, but I think there are some parts of the communication that I really like. <laughs> so, you know, there's, it's a funny thing to say because there are parts of having to adapt to the way I talk. I am bad at making space for other people to enter conversations and it's made me conscious of that. And then for the farmer's market, you know, a lot of what I'm doing is telling the stories of how things are produced. And, you know, again, in an honest and genuine way, but I'm telling people stories and teaching them about food and cooking. And so in that way, it's a little bit more like being like an adjunct lecturer than it is like normal communication. You know, you're like, especially the farmer's market, it's a lot like being on stage, even, you know, no matter how genuine you're being, you know, it's these short interactions where you're trying to give people some of yourself and figure out what they need from you. It's a very interesting farmer's sure. market itself is a very interesting yeah. setting. And you know, my grandmother was a very successful antique dealer. And I think it's because she really enjoyed getting to know people. I would think that that's an important key to your success as well. Yeah. And I, I mean, I have to say that is resoundingly part of, I think, the reason that not just, you know, I, I think I grow really nice produce and I think I'm good at, you know, properly taking care of things and delivering them in ideal, you know, settings and all of that. But I think a lot of it is also that I really enjoy people and I'm genuinely interested in how people are preparing things and how I can help them. I mean, I think that's one of the best things about what I do is it feel, you know, it's something I enjoy and I genuinely am excited to meet people in that space. And it's such an easy place to meet people. Like, you know, it's not a political conversation. It's not a, you know, it's a place where like food is such an easy thing that all people love and respect and have traditions around. And so it's, it's really nice to be in that space because it's in certain ways, just very, very comfortable. Let's go back a bit. When you were graduating from high school, what were your goals? 
I wanted to travel. I wanted to go to the mountains and be outside. Like every exposure I had to like camping and being in outdoor settings really made me want more of that growing up. And so I was like, this was not really my natural setting (laughs) for a lot of reasons in terms of just like wanting to be outside. And so that was part of what I was interested in. And I was really interested in food. So, you know, when I was in high school, my high school had a requirement for volunteering. I then ended up working part-time or, you know, volunteering at a place that was a mobile soup kitchen. There was a component that was helping homebound people with AIDS, which like at that time in New York was right there, like deep in the AIDS crisis and made me very conscious of the degree to which the program was trying to give people really nourishing food, which is like very obvious, but like it was a focus on good food for people that at that time were mostly dying at home alone. And then the other component was like straight food aid, like soup, like, you know, soup and crackers and um, just prepared meals. And when I started doing that, I kind of assumed we were going to work with homeless people. But in a lot of areas, it was like working professionals. Like I was like shocked in a like guttural way that there were people who were like pretty much like the secretary at a high school coming to get food because so much of their money went to rent and they weren't eligible for government assistance. So so like, I didn't really understand that at all. And that is kind of what directed my major in college. So I was like, oh, I mean, I should say I'm, I'm myself. I mentioned my parents. Um, I got very good grades and I was like, where should I go to college? And I was like, well, Cornell University has three of the whatever, seven colleges. I don't actually know how many colleges there are, are public. And so I can go to a state school at an Ivy League school. Like that seems really smart, <laughs> um, especially right. being my like, okay, my parents are going to help me pay for tuition. This is a very affordable way to get an amazing education. And New York State has this system of giving New York State kids lottery money for scholarships. So I ended up going to the ag school at Cornell. And I chose this major that was international agriculture and development, where I could pretty much study anything I wanted in food policy. So I kind of thought I was going to be studying like anti-hunger international food policy. But then I was also like, maybe I should learn more about farming. Like that was kind of a side thing because like, I'm really not informed. Like it seems really deeply problematic to be like, we're going to set agricultural policy with having like no idea about actual food production. Um, So that's kind of what got me to the edge of um, my farming career. And then um, when I graduated from college and I did some things in college, I went to India And that informed a lot about me, like realizing I wanted to do work in the United States and felt like I could do, I could impact things more at home. And then I decided to go to graduate school in Madison in what is now called community environmental sociology. But at that time it was a rural sociology program because I was interested still in like policy kind of, you know, what are the, how can I engage with the big the big stuff. And so that is, that's what got me to Wisconsin. For someone who's not familiar with the acronym CSA, what is it? So CSA is, stands for Community Supported Agriculture. I'm not going to give the whole background, but CSA <laughs> kind of co-evolved in different parts of the world simultaneously as the food system industrialized. So some people say that it came from parts of Northern Europe. Other people say Japan. 
It was originally like a consumer driven movement. So a bunch of Japanese moms would basically go out and hire a farmer and say, hey, can you grow these crops for us in a way that you're not using a lot of pesticides and herbicides and growing them, you know, some of the more traditional varieties that we like to eat. Um, and then the farmer would deliver a box of diverse vegetables kind of in the parameters of what those consumers wanted. The Midwest version, and I should say that version that I mentioned is something that had evolved on the East Coast of the United States. Most of the older CSAs on the East Coast came out of mm. consumer driven in the Midwest. And I think more recently, um, most CSAs have come out of kind of a model to preserve family owned farms or small business farms, you know, if, if it's a partnership or a few families working together, but it's a system where people, so if you're an eater or a consumer, you're basically buying a membership or a subscription to the farm for the season, you pay up front, it helps farmers cover the cost of seed and kind of avoid the cyclical debt that is the norm in most of agriculture. And then also farmers are kind of growing food for you, like quite literally. <laughs> so it's not like they're just selling you extra sweet corn or they have a certain thing that they're producing for you. Like for our CSA, we're producing a diverse set of vegetables based on what we've historically learned people like, and then we are delivering those things in the growing season. And so CSA often involves like education and community events when it's not COVID and a whole set of connections between the farmers and the eaters and a commitment to each other. So the idea is that if you're, you know, becoming a member in a CSA, you're sharing in both the risks and the bounties that may come with that growing season. And as a farmer, it's our responsibility. I take this very seriously and different CSAs do this differently, but um, I feel like what our job is, is to reduce all of the controllable risks. So that might be having appropriate irrigation equipment, having enough staff, making sure things are well weeded. So to control the things we can control, but obviously certain years, some crops are better and some crops are worse. So even though, you know, everyone loves tomatoes, if in a, you know, in a giving season we get late blight, which has never happened, but if we were to get this bad disease, people might have almost no tomatoes. And and we would be trying to control that risk, but there are risks that arise through agriculture. Along with the CSA, what are your other lines of income? All of my income comes from farming. So I don't have other income streams outside of the farm. Um, my farm and its current permutation is about a third CSA income. It is about 25% farmer's market. And then the biggest chunk, which is kind of unfair to lump it all together, is a category that I refer to as high value wholesale. That includes grocery stores. So we sell to two main stores and then we have some like smaller health foodie type stores that we sell to. It includes school districts. So there are five school districts um, that we feed into during different parts of the year. It also includes restaurants. And then it also includes like a small frozen food contract for a nonprofit that does a aggregated CSA with frozen organic vegetables. So, I mean, that, that middle portion is actually quite diverse and as well as food banks. So some, one of the newest things that we have been working on in the last couple of years with another farm is basically doing mini CSA shares for food banks. So there's, there's also that. 
lot of people wonder, what is family life like on your farm? I mean, what's a typical day like? Farm family life is really different in different families and is different with different priorities. And I know this because I did own a different farm a short distance from here with a different spouse and had a very different family life and a very different rhythm of my week and season, even though it's the same soil type, the same seasonal constraints and fairly similar geographical region marketed to. So that said, our life, especially because we're so far north, our daylight and temperature <laughs> really dictate our life. Our seasons are quite severe and intense. And because of that, our family life and farm life are really, you know, really strongly impacted by those shifts. So at this time of year, while I'm recording a podcast with you, it's a very slow time of season of the year. You know, we're just over eight hours of daylight <laughs> and it's cold. And a lot of what we're doing is kind of maintaining the temperature of everything um, and taking care of things more passively and doing planning. It's also the time of year that we spend kind of more unstructured family time. What I imagine like people with nine to five jobs do with their kids like more regularly, but like, you know, where we play more board games and we do more Legos and, and we, we do actually spend quite a bit about time outside. We go ice fishing a lot as a family and hiking and cross-country skiing and sledding. And that's what winter is like. And we are, you know, we are ordering things for the farm and fixing things and maintaining things. But it's a very mellow and self-dictated schedule. And then between March and November, <laughs> it's kind of like a you know, it's like you're, it's photosynthesis central. And so our, our whole life is focused on setting ourselves up in March and April, setting ourselves up to plant and get ready and like kind of all hands on deck. And it's, then you're in waiting and then, and then you are, it's, you know, May and June, we're planting about 80% of the crops that will be harvested for the year. Um, and then we'll plant all the way through September. But then we're planting, harvesting, and weeding very intensely <laughs> until the beginning of November, end of October. And so our, our life gets very intense. That said, my kids go to public school and have a pretty regular schedule, um, like many working families. You know, now we have a 13-year-old who will be 14 year old, 14 years old this year, but we, you know, hire childcare in the summer, which is one of the best investments that I should have made earlier in my career. And we try to hold more regular business hours so that we can spend time doing fun things with the kids and have energy. I mean, as a parent, it is, I think all parents would probably say this, but it is exhausting, especially in summer to play with the kids after work, especially when we're like walking 10 miles a day and doing physical labor. It can be very tiring, <laughs> but it's something that we try to do. But yeah, I mean, our schedule looks very, you know, kind of very similar to a lot of working families and in certain ways is easier because we're not commuting. <laughs> like I never have to really commute um, and the kids get on the school bus now and, you know, come back on the school bus. And so, you know, that's pretty normal. Trying to think about other weekdays. I mean, uniquely to our family, because my kids are with their dad um, for part of the week, our work schedule tends to be much more intense. I always joke that I'm like, you know, we kind of live, I'm not, we're not bachelors, like, and I'm not like single or like a couple, but we like kind of 
trash our house when the kids aren't here we would like never allow the kids to like do the things that we do like we don't wash the dishes we like stack everything up don't sweep the floor the laundry isn't put away you know like and then the kids like Wednesday the kids are going to come back and like we like clean everything up right to make it look yeah. like and that that would work better if the kids are a mile away when they're with their dad because they like show up on other days of the week so they know but yeah I mean individually our work schedule is more like focused on this weird working more when the kids aren't here thing farming of course is physically demanding do you have any concerns about being able to keep up with that kind of pace yeah, I mean, that's something it's, I'm very aware of the fact, like, you know, I'm 42. I'm very aware of the fact that I don't have a giant amount of, I'm, I mean, I'm very physically active. I'm very physically intense. Like this is, you know, I have two children that are also like this. I can't even imagine how my parents handled me in a city. And so, and I, but I've already started slowing down, like compared to what I was like, especially in my late twenties and early thirties. But I already have a phase out plan <laughs> or, or I'm working actively on that. And so, you know, even, you know, when I moved to this farm, so when I left my other farm and moved here, which was kind of a transition between 2016 and 2018, that whole period, I did a lot of things with that in mind, um, which I hadn't done in my past farm career. So I finance, you know, when I did my financing, I front loaded the debt in a way that made more sense for when I knew I could really produce <laughs> and push myself um, if I needed to. Um, and that is, I feel like a great plan because I really will have a very little mortgage payment after the first 10 years of this farm. So by 2027, you know, the financial demands of maintaining the farm will be much less similar with investments. I mean, I do think about these things like in a fairly strategic way. So a lot of the larger investments for the farm are set up to kind of also be made on that same time schedule. So it's a lot of kind of capitalization and larger long-term investments and debt payment front-loaded. And then part of it is having a farm where we, instead of just focusing on, let's say, like making the most money or growing the most food, one of the focuses for our farm has been trying to get as much profitability per acre, I guess it would be the best way to think about it, like for unit of land possible, constrained by the fact that everybody will want certain crops that aren't like sweet corn, which is not very profitable. There's certain constraints, especially because of CSA on that, but also because of crop diversity and rotations. But we have about six acres of tillable land. And the idea is to move more and more of that land into a full year cover crop. A cover crop is basically a crop that's planted in order to put back into the soil. <laughs> so you're basically mm -hmm. growing a crop that turned into the soil or covers the soil or both of those things. And so the idea is to kind of ratchet literally back the space and work over time while maintaining profitability at the same, like the farm level profitability. Right. <laughs> so sounds, right. you know, it's, it's super challenging. And, and I actually have loved this focus. It's really different than what I did on my old farm where we kind of added enterprises and enterprises and enterprises. This is like, it takes a lot more mental work and math and creativity. And I, I've really enjoyed that, you know, thinking through cropping systems that are so outside of my experience and things that I haven't seen other people do, like some of this can, like self-constraint, which is basically to set it up so that, you know, 
2027, around that time period, that we're really on a much smaller footprint being as productive as possible, and then can make the decision to downscale at any point or transfer, you know, open up acreage if we have an employee who wants to be taking on more, more responsibility. But the idea is to put um, the farm in a place, but then obviously myself financially too, in a place mm-hmm. that we have that. But I think there's a lot of farmers who say, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I think that that's a really dangerous position to put yourself in. Right, um, right. Like where anyone's living, there are threats and maybe potentially opportunities that come with climate change. What are you seeing in your part of the country when it comes to climate change? At a farm level, when we think about climate change, which you know has such a big impact on our lives <laughs> and our livelihood directly impacts it, there's kind of two different aspects of climate, or maybe I should say there's three different aspects of climate change. One of them is the severe uncontrollable disasters. So those are something that I kind of put aside. Like there, we cannot make tornadoes not happen, you know, giant hail storms, things that rip things apart. Like I'm going to put that in the hope and pray category, but overall that's a place that I feel like I can't, I I don't have a lot of actionable um, work and it's a concern, right? Severe, that severe shifts in weather, some of the winds and like thunderstorms, those type of things are really intimidating. And maybe I would even put flooding somewhat in that category, like the large rain events. The second thing is though, like kind of connected to that are, it's planning the farm. I mean, this is both a, something we are actively doing, but I, gosh, I wish there were better <laughs> models to follow is planning for those large weather events. I mean, there's certain ways that like my farm from the get-go has been planned with a very clear understanding of soil loss, how soil moves. You know, we're an organic farm, which means that we do use, you know, some forms of tillage, even in any of your listeners are folks that are interested in like kind of like no-till vegetables, most of that still involves tillage. It's just a reduced amount. And so, you know, we have big headlands and lots of grassland and habitat for beneficial insects and wildlife. And we're surrounded by the woods, um, which is pretty important because the woods absorbs a lot of water really fast. So if we get four inches of rain and there's the there's no leaves on the trees, the impact on the soil is very different than when there are. So they're, they're kind of those things, but in terms of opportunities, I mean, we're part of a co-learning community, I think is what we're called, of farmers that are looking at interesting ways to reduce or eliminate tillage in the farm system. I think I mentioned us moving toward full year cover crops on some of our tillable land. That's part of our response to that is just making sure that we're doing a really good job with soil building and keeping soil in place for the, you know, as long as possible in the system. One of the opportunities, I guess, is that a lot of farmers have kind of put this on the table as something they want, are going to put time into innovating around. And a lot has happened in a relatively short period of time. It's kind of like the COVID vaccine. Like <laughs> you get all hands on deck, you can do things like pretty amazingly, right? And then you know, we do have covered production. So we've put in hoop houses, which are unheated greenhouses we're growing in the ground. And I mean, there's lots of reasons to critique plastic culture. You know, they're, they're covered with plastic. That's what the shell of them is, which clearly is not a long-term sustainable solution for a lot of things. But we aren't pushed to be in the field, kind of actively working land during times where the soil is too wet. 
So with heavy mm. rainfall, having a place to go where you can productively work is really important. And a lot of us in a wet spring feel really pushed to get in the field. And so those kind of reserve spaces, it's only about a half an acre of land total under tunnels, including kind of some low tunnels that aren't permanent structures. But that really allows us a buffer space. That's something we're kind of using as part of our management. But I I mean, I don't have any large, you know, the other things that we're seeing, which I love to gripe about is simultaneously with climate change, we're also seeing a big change in the agricultural landscape of the county. So there's a lot as small dairy kind of the small dairy economy collapses. There's a lot more people renting land and cash cropping. And this is really not like Iowa. This isn't even like Southern Wisconsin, like where this is not corn land. This is clover and winter wheat land. That's where we live. Like that's the real crops that grow here well or, or oats. And so when people come and start planting corn, they tile the land, they put drainage it's basically tubing into the soil. And that means that there's more water running all around the neighborhoods and the ditches through our land. And so that's something that's kind of an unfortunate thing that's happening at the same time as climate change. People are trying to lower, kind of dry out their land, but it also means that the, the land gives off water much faster. And so the overall runoff out of the system is higher which is negative and it impacts us. Like we have a waterway from our township that runs through our farm. And so we put in a culvert and two times this year, and this was not a very severe year, it, it went over the culvert. And so, you know, those are the kinds of things that we are managing. I'm not doing a very good job, like tackling climate change, but certainly it dominates a lot of the conversations we have about planning because it's, it, it's not totally unpredictable, but it's going to be a lot. It's more to manage. My last question is something that might tie back to the beginning of our conversation. What do you see as the spiritual dimension of growing food? Oh, that's a good question. This is where I need to bring in my sister. She's kind of like the philosophical branch of my family. She provides that. I mean, you know, in any, I guess, you know, I obviously gave you my, I clearly like worship food directly. Um, you can tell by the way I talk about farming, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really far- so that I have great food. That's a question on many levels. Um, in terms of growing food, I mean, I think something that folks don't think about, I think they think about it with animals, actually. They, you know, people want to make sure that they're buying a happy pig or a happy cow and they can really identify or anthropomorphize like um, animals because um, it's easier to identify with them. But I think, you know, as far as it's a spiritual practice, I think, you know, working, a lot of us that are organic farmers, our goal is to work with the land. And that is a process of also like, you know, knowing and identifying parts of yourself. Like it's almost impossible to farm well and take good care of things without a lot of introspection, which for like super loud, impulsive extroverts like me is not like a natural state. Um, (laughs) But I think, you know, I mean, I think that there is this sense that in observation and um, time with land, you like form a real relationship with it, where like, you know it. And to some extent, it's a reflection 
of you and your values, right? What is growing, how it's growing, how it looks. And then, you know, the other thing, which I would say, Logan's in the other room, he can hear me, that's my husband, but he, I always say he can talk to animals and plants. And I think it's like quite clear that he can, even though he would maybe not publicly admit to that. But there is like a degree to which you can see <laughs> that some people have a better intuition for how to take care of things the way they want to be taken care of, which is something that I'm sure that I would have never seen when I was younger. And that's a, it's like a pretty amazing thing to bear witness to um, on a farm level. And then, I mean, I've raised my children on farms, very different than my own life. And the most, I'm, all children will think raspberries are magic and cherry tomatoes are amazing and those things. But, you know, I get to see those connections in a way that informs my work. Seeing my kids pick peas, even if they grumble about it, <laughs> allows me like a window into a connection with a larger, you know, with everyone that eats the peas in, in certain ways. And, you know, it's like a subsect section of that. I, I almost wish with our CSA, I always say one of the biggest mistakes I made, although it's, it's obviously not a giant mistake, but I moved a mile down the road from my old farm for a lot of reasons that are very good for my kids. But I almost always <laughs> wish that I was right on the edge of the city where people could come out and they could could be more part of things on a daily basis. Because in certain ways, it's like, I wish I could give that experience to other people uh, in, in like a little way. Like we have worker shares and we have people here, but especially watching their interactions, agriculture is powerful and it is part of who we are historically. And it's kind of like in our blood in a very intuitive way, but also in a very spiritual way. Like people will, will talk again and again about the depth of connection they felt to the farm. And, and that's not just like us, it's like the actual farm. And so there is something about growing food and being with food in that way. I want to thank Katrina Becker for joining us, and I hope you enjoyed listening. Our podcast is produced by Eclectic River Daydream. You've heard from us, and now we want to hear from you. Leave us feedback on our website at www.storypod.us or on Facebook at American Storyteller. Until the next time you hear from me, I'm Chris Gerboth, and this is American Storyteller. <laughs>